God's response to Abimelech is very interesting. It shows us several things about God. It shows us his omniscience, his sovereignty, his faithfulness, his intercession, and his grace. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. morning. Uh, And as you know, we have a, before we begin and dive into Genesis 20, uh, we have a holiday coming up tomorrow, uh, but it's not the one that you're probably thinking about. Um, This holiday has no pagan rituals, uh, it has no spooky themes, and unfortunately it has no candy either. Um, But I am talking about Reformation Day, uh, and Pastor Pilgrim already mentioned it in his prayer the day we remember by God's providence and preservation of his church 505 years ago when Martin Luther and others ignited a return to the simple truths of God's word. They restored the true gospel message which had been twisted, corrupted, it had been monetized and hidden. And the reformation of the church back to Scripture has had far-reaching effects that still mark us today. In our gathering this morning, we are speaking in our common tongue, English. We are not having our gathering in Latin. We know that because of the work of Christ, we can come directly to worship our triune God. There is no, there has been no candle lighting or veneration of saints, of kissing, of icons as you came in the door this morning to ask them to bring our prayers to God. Uh, After our gathering today, we will not invite you to this little room over here where you can come and confess your sins to Pastor Pilgrim or myself. You are not required to do penance for your sins, both either here on earth or in a false place called purgatory, because the debt has been paid in full. And perhaps the joyous, the most joyous news that we have this morning is knowing that our salvation is kept by God himself. It is not kept by us. And so there is no way that we will fall from grace if we commit a certain sin. And friends, this is vitally important that we teach our kids about this holiday rather than the one that is so increasingly popular in our culture. And one of the sayings that came out of the Reformation was a Latin phrase, post tenebras lux, which means after darkness, there's light. After many centuries of darkness in bad theology, the light of the gospel sprang forth once again, illuminating dark souls and rescuing the captives. Do you see the difference? Tomorrow, one holiday celebrates darkness and death, and one holiday celebrates light and truth. Now, am I saying don't let your kids go trick-or-treat? No, that's a matter of conscience. You have the freedom to make that decision. But as believers, our identity in Christ means that we are people of the day, We are people of the light, of truth, of joy, 
of life, even eternal life. We are not people of darkness, of death, destruction, or trickery. So my encouragement as we come to tomorrow is let's live out who we are in Christ and let's teach that to our children. Amen? One of the other truths that came out of the Reformation was a return to the authority of God's word. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone has the ultimate authority. And so there was a new love for truth, for the truth of God's word. And Psalm 119, 103, and 104 says this, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. And so my prayer for this morning as we look at Genesis 20, and every time we have the privilege to open up God's word, is that we will do so with a love for truth, a desire for understanding. And as that desire grows, so will our hatred for everything that is false, everything that is contrary to the beautiful truth of his word. Dustin Bench, he gives us six encouragements for how we should prepare to listen to a sermon. First, he says, pray for the Spirit's illumination. He says it would be helpful if you knew the context of the passage before you came. Take good notes, turn off distractions, and of course, read the Bible regularly and resolve to obey its words. So let's take his wise advice and pray as we open up God's word this morning. Lord, we do count it a privilege to come and to open your word that has been translated and given to us in our language that we can understand. Lord, we thank you today for men like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Oleg Zwingli and others, Lord, who stood for the truth of the gospel in an age when it was being hidden. Lord, thank you that this Reformation still has effects that we enjoy today. And Lord, we ask by your Holy Spirit that you would illuminate our minds this morning, that as we come to your word, that we would understand it, we would find joy in it, and that we would resolve to obey it, Lord, because of the work that you've done in our hearts. You've given us new hearts, hearts that desire to know you and to love you. And so we ask that you would teach us this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you were not here last week, I do encourage you to go back and listen to the sermon Pastor Pilgrim preached on Genesis 19. Uh, it really is a crucial chapter where we see God's righteous judgment against sin and yet his mercy to Lot and his daughters. Pastor Pilgrim also defended the truth of God's word concerning homosexuality. Uh, and we looked at how Lot's foolish deci decisions led him to almost lose his life in Sodom. And ultimately, though, we were encouraged uh, to not try and be a better Lot, just to be better than that guy. No, but to rest in the work of Christ, put our trust in his work. For our sermon today, I've titled it The Preservation of God's Covenant. Because we are almost at chapter 21, where we will see a fulfillment of one of God's promises to Abraham, that Sarah will conceive and have a son. And yet, before we get there, uh, we see God fulfilling one of his other promises, one of his other covenant promises to Abraham in this chapter. And in chapter 20, we see that Abraham, again, 
He fails to trust the promises of God. He acts in his own strength, and he uses deception to try and control the situation. And so there's much to learn uh, from Abraham and much to be encouraged by as we see the hand of the Lord working in spite of Abraham's sin. And so there are three things that I'd like to show you this morning. And these points are not based on a particular section of verses in this chapter per se, uh, but they're overarching themes of the chapter. And so today we're going to be warned. First of all, we're going to be warned to beware of returning to old sins. Then we're going to see that the Lord intercedes for his people and that the Lord not only intercedes, but he blesses us so much more than we deserve. So beware of returning to old sins. The Lord intercedes for his people and he not only intercedes, but blesses us more than we deserve. Now, this chapter is very similar to what happened in chapter 12 when Abraham went down temporarily to Egypt. And as we come to verse 1, we see that Abraham and his family are on the move again. And we're not given a reason this time for his move. Uh, in chapter 12, we know that they went down to Egypt because of a famine. But although a specific reason is not given, it is most likely due to the events surrounding Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham had just witnessed this destruction. Was he wanting a, a change of scenery due to these horrific events? Very possibly. Now, our text tells us that Abraham heads south to live between Kadesh and Shur, and he temporarily visits, uh, visits Gerar. And it's said that he sojourned there. It's very interesting, uh, considering that we as believers, we are called what? We're called sojourners. In 1 Peter 1 and 1 Peter 2, we know that we are here on this earth temporarily. This world is not our home. And Abraham went before us in a different way, where he was a stranger and a foreigner, and he sojourned around this area that one day was to become the land of the Israelites. Well, what do we know about these places mentioned? Well, I want, I want to show you a couple maps to get our bearings so we can see a little bit where we are. Uh, so this first map, this is a map of the desert of shore. You can see that little red pin there. Uh, and this is a name uh, of a desert east of the Gulf of Suez. And the, the word means a wall. And it may probably refer that there, there is a mountain wall, and there's called the Ti Plateau, T-I-H, the Ti Plateau. And you can see it uh, from the shore plains. This place is mentioned a couple times in Scripture. In Genesis 16 already, we've seen that Hagar at Kadesh is said to have been in the way to shore. And Genesis 25 defines the position of this desert as being opposite Egypt on the way to Assyria. And then elsewhere in the Old Testament, after crossing the Red Sea in Exodus 15, the Hebrews entered the desert of Shur, which extended southward a distance of three days' journey. And then it's also, again, noticed in 1 Samuel 15 and said it's being opposite Egypt and also 1 Samuel 27 as being near Egypt. So that gives us a little bit of a picture there. Next, we have a map of Kadesh Barnea, and this one's hard to see, but it's at the point there where the blue line comes and makes a point and goes back up uh, right there. It's called also a Kadesh Barnea, 
is another name that is called, and it's a region located in the desert of Zin, and it's mentioned numerous times in the Old Testament, and it's located somewhere between the border of Edom and Israel, and it's southwest of the Dead Sea. And it's connected to a lot of events in Israel's history, uh, specifically in the Pentateuch. And the name itself is thought to mean the holy place of the desert of wandering. And you can know why it's called that, because of the years that the Israelites spent wandering. And it's mentioned several times in the Old Testament, all the way from Genesis to Ezekiel. And it's even mentioned one time in the book of Psalms. Now, what do we know about Gerar? Well, Gerar, not as much. So here's uh, a map of Gerar. It's also hard to see, but if you can see that little red word, that is where Gerar is. If you can see any red on that map, that's, that's where it is. Uh, and Gerar was a Philistine city uh, between Palestine and Egypt, about 10 miles south of Gaza. And it's first mentioned in Genesis 10, verse 19. Uh, and we know that both Abraham and Isaac spent time there. Outside of Genesis, it's mentioned twice in 2 Chronicles, and that's about it. And archaeologists are not positively certain where the ruins are, but they narrow it down to that position on the map there. So that gives us a little bit of our bearing. Uh, but verse 2 tells us, And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. And so a question that we want to consider this morning is what led Abraham to commit a sin, to fall back into a sin that he had committed previously? It's been over 20 years since the events of Genesis 12 in Egypt. And I'd like to suggest to you two reasons. Uh, first, discouragement. Remember the events that surrounded Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah? Lot was like a son to Abraham. Abraham desired the best for Lot. And we see this in how he let Lot choose the best land. We see it in how Abraham and his men rescued Lot uh, from Chedorlaomer and those other kings. And we saw his grief in pleading to the Lord in Genesis 18. Lord, would you spare the city if there's just 10, just 10 righteous and Abraham, no doubt, was immensely discouraged by what happened there, by Lot's decisions, by the death of his wife and Lot's sons-in-law, by the sinful aftermath in the cave with Lot's daughters. You've gone so far from the Lord, Lot. What happened? Discouragement that comes from sad events in our lives can lead to a second reason. Discouragement leads to unbelief in God's promises. Abraham says in verse 11, he says, I did it. Why did you do this, Abraham? I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. There's assumptions here. There's pride and unbelief in God's previous promises, all in this one verse. We see the pride in his thinking he said, I did it because I thought. Well, you thought, Abraham? You thought you were going to be killed? No. God had promised protection back in chapter 12. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who dishonor you, I will curse. 
There's a false assumption here where he says, there is no fear of God at all in this place. This most likely, again, comes from his experience with Sodom and Gomorrah, thinking, well, those guys were rotten to the core, so that must be the same for all these cities around in this area. Well, that turns out to be incorrect. Even though Abimelech, as far as we know, was not a believer in the true God, he turns out to be a man of integrity who deals fairly with Abraham, both in this chapter and in the next chapter. One person said that Lot erred in thinking that there was good in Sodom when there was not at all. And yet Abraham erred in thinking there was no good in Gerar when there was much to be found. All of this shows Abraham's unbelief, which led him to return to an old sin. In verse 13, as a part of his excuse, he goes back to the pact that he made with Sarah way back when God first called him. He says, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Sarah, we're not sure what we're going to get into as we go on this journey. So in order to protect me, and remember, this was a selfish request that had no thought for his own wife. In order to protect me, we will both lie about our relationship. And so we see that discouragement and unbelief led Abraham to fall back into this old sin. And now speaking of this sin, we may be tempted to think, oh, well, you know, it's just a little sin. It was, you know, a partial lie. It was partly true, right? Because Sarah was his half-sister, But like we talked about before in Genesis 12, it's much more serious than this. First, like we just said, this is an extremely selfish request. They will kill me. No matter that I will be subjecting you, Sarah, to adultery, to a relationship with some pagan king that you have no desire to be in. But this time, there is an added situation that Sarah is either about to be or is already pregnant at this time. And so what potential jeopardy Abraham was putting Sarah's reputation in? Fast forward to the birth of Isaac. Oh, congratulations, Abraham and Sarah. But um, we know she couldn't get pregnant, and then she went and spent some time with King Abimelech, and now she's back, and she's pregnant. Who's the father? We don't know. So Abraham was not only suspecting or subjecting Sarah to an unbiblical relationship, but also to potentially scar her reputation and cast doubt on the birth of the promised seed that would lead to the Messiah. Now, of course, in God's good providence, this does not happen. And we'll see how God intercedes for Abraham in just a minute. But you might be thinking as well, well, you know, it doesn't really seem like God chastises Abraham for his sin. He doesn't directly speak to him. He doesn't, we have no record of what God thought about his sin. And you would be partially right. We don't see God himself speaking to Abraham about this. But this doesn't mean that God had stayed silent. Both here and in Genesis 12, God uses an unbeliever pagan kings to show Abraham his sin. Look at verse 9. Verse 9, Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, 
What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see? Like, what were you thinking? What did you have in view that you did this thing? And this is no doubt a humbling moment for Abraham. Abimelech says, what in the world did I do to you that you would bring such a great sin upon me and my kingdom? And we know that the fear of the Lord had been put into Abimelech when God came and spoke to him. He understood the gravity of the situation, and he, it, he understood it better than Abraham did. And he speaks clearly. He said, these are things that ought not to be done. This is wrong. Now, outside of recognizing the power of Yahweh, we do not have any insight into Abimelech's spiritual state. But with Abraham's sin, there was danger that Abraham could be also bringing reproach upon the name of the Lord. What kind of moral authority would Abraham have now with this pagan king? Abimelech had come to him with the higher moral judgment and authority. What kind of moral authority could Abraham bring to this relationship now after this Philistine king rebukes him for his actions? And it brings to mind Romans 2.24 where Paul says, For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And Paul is saying, because of your hypocrisy, you self-righteous Jews, the Gentiles want nothing to do with Yahweh, and they even blaspheme him in disgust. And so this is a very serious situation. And it one, it's one that demands that we consider our own actions around unbelievers as well. Now, by God's grace, it doesn't seem like Abimelech's relationship with Abraham is ruined. We see that both in the later verses of this chapter and also in chapter 21. But friends, be, before we become too prideful and judgmental towards Abraham, how many times have we fallen into an old sin? How many times has discouragement led to unbelief? But we don't trust in God's promises. And we know that at this time, Abraham is not a new believer. He has had decades of communion with God. He's called a friend of God. He's declared righteous. And yet we see him sin in this way again. And if we search our own hearts, we know that it has not been any different for us. And lest we get too prideful, we must remember 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, consider, lest he fall. And David Guzik, he says here that age does not automatically sanctify us. Unless yielded to the Spirit of God, we will repeat in our old age the sinful patterns of our youth. That's true. Gray hair does not automatically bring wisdom. Uh, two nights ago, we were studying James together, and we were looking at where does true wisdom come from? James says, who is wise and understanding among you? How do you know if somebody is wise? He says, let him show by his good conduct. Let him show by his actions that he is truly wise. And so age does not automatically sanctify us. So friends, with Abraham, we are to beware of returning to old sins. Not only will it cause damage to yourself and to others, but it is an affront to God's great grace in our lives. But 
thanks be to God that he gives us more grace and intercedes for us. And so we move to our next thought this morning. The Lord intercedes for his people. Look again at verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? And she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. And so we see in these verses God's intercession and grace for Abraham and Sarah, but also for Abimelech as well. Verse 3 tells us that God came to Abimelech in a dream. And we know that at special times throughout Scripture, God revealed himself in dreams to his people. Of course, we do not see that as often now, nor do we need that because we have God's completed revelation for us. He does not need to reveal himself in dreams. He has revealed himself through his word. Uh, but we see that very rarely he would come to someone who is not a believer, who is not a part of the covenant. But he comes to them with his chosen people in mind. And so he comes to Abimelech in fulfillment of his promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. Although unknowingly, Abraham, or Abimelech was about to discover, or not discover, dishonor Abraham and, and his family in a huge way. And the Lord, in his grace to Abraham, he puts a stop to it. And this brings us to mind Psalm 105, 14, and 15. It reminded, God reminded the people of Israel what he did, what the Lord did. It says, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, and do my prophets no harm. Now, just a quick side note. You might have heard this verse used um, by false prosperity gospel preachers to say that no one can criticize them. And what they're doing is they're taking this verse out of context in order to try and insulate themselves against the natural criticism that arises out of their false doctrine and their lavish lifestyles. How dare you criticize me? I am an anointed prophet. No, Benny Hinn, this verse is not referring to you. It's referring to God's promises to Abraham and the other patriarchs. It's also referring to physical harm. It's not referring to words and criticism. And what's interesting is you won't find any of the New Testament apostles using this verse to try and stop any persecution that they encountered. In fact, the New Testament makes it clear that everyone who is in Christ is anointed. All believers are God's anointed. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 and 22 says, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So, don't be taken aback if you hear 
these false teachers use this verse. Okay, side note over. Continuing on. How does God intercede for Abraham and Sarah? Well, he puts Abimelech on notice. He says, you're a dead man if you do not return Sarah. Now, you'll notice that God does not clue in Abimelech into the larger situation about his promises to Abraham of a son and a nation, ultimately giving birth to the Messiah. He doesn't need to do that. Why? Well, look at the sin that he focuses on. It's mentioned in verse 3 and in verse 7. In verse 3, he says, she is a man's wife. In verse 7, he says, return the man's wife. And so Abimelech was about to commit adultery. And so what does this tell us? Well, it tells us that God takes the covenant of marriage very seriously. And we don't have to look far on God's word to see this, both from marriage being instituted in Genesis to adultery being condemned as one of the Ten Commandments to the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 against adultery. But we also find it in this passage in just a more subtle way. Abimelech, though, he has a clear conscience before God. One, he hadn't approached her, so there was no kind of physical relationship that happened. And two, he was lied to by both Abraham and Sarah. And his response in verse 4, it may have had Sodom in mind. He says, would you kill an innocent people? We're not like Sodom and Gomorrah. I have integrity in my heart. They told me they were siblings. And God's response to Abimelech is very interesting. It shows us several things about God. It shows us his omniscience, his sovereignty, his faithfulness, his intercession, and his grace. God says, yes, you are right. I know your heart. I know you are telling the truth. But it was I who prevented this sin from happening. I did not let you touch her. Very interesting. So what do we see? Well, we see God's omniscience in that he knows the actions of man. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. We see God's sovereignty and his control over the situation. His plans for the son of promise would not be thwarted. Not at all. He intervenes and he stops Abimelech from sinning. We see his faithfulness. In spite of Abraham's sin, I will keep my promises to him. We see his intercession and how he personally reveals himself and speaks to Abimelech for the sake of Abraham and Sarah. And we see his great grace to Abimelech himself, a pagan king whose whole household was on the brink of death and yet was spared from committing this sin. And so this gives us a glimpse of God's restraint of sin. There are so many sinful plans and ideas that have not been carried out in history. And this is a sign of God's sovereignty and of his common grace to us. We know that this world is not as bad as it could be. And I believe that it's a mix of God's sovereign restraint against sin, the gift of conscience that he has given every person, and also the gift of civil government that he's created to be a sword against those who would do evil. And we should also note that our role as believers in this world is to be a voice and example for truth and righteousness. So the Lord uses us as well. 
and the Holy Spirit that's been given to us. The Lord intercedes for his people. And as we think of our own lives, how grateful are we for Christ's intercession for us? We're zooming into one particular event here in the life of Abraham, where the Lord was gracious to intercede. But how often do we rely on Christ's intercession for us? Hebrews 7.25 tells us, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus did not go to heaven after his earthly ministry and take a break from his role as eternal shepherd to his people. No. Romans 5.10 says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his, what? Life. And so, if when Jesus was humble, when he was despised, when he was dying, he had the power to accomplish so great a work as reconciling us to God, how much more may we expect that he will be able to keep us now that he is a living, exalted, and triumphant Redeemer, raised to life and interceding on our behalf before the throne. It's amazing. Romans 8.34 also tells us that Christ is at the right hand of God interceding for us. A beautiful modern hymn, Before the Throne of God Above, puts it well. You know it. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me and for you. Amen. Well, let's move to our final thought this morning. That the Lord not only intercedes, but he blesses us more than we deserve. Look at verse 14. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother. I know there may be a little bit of sarcasm in there. We don't know for sure. But your brother, um, I'm adding that in, a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So this is super abounding grace that God is showing. This is a blessing of God to Abraham, Abimelech, and Sarah. And so let's just look at each one, each person. To Abraham, uh, Abraham's assumptions, as we know about this place, they were wrong. Abraham was not going to be killed. The exact opposite happened. And so we see Abimelech's kindness and even reverence towards Abraham, because that came as a result of God's warning to Abimelech, where he said, this man is a prophet. Return his wife so that he will pray for you and you shall live. So Abimelech gives this royal decree that Abraham could live wherever he wanted within the Philistine borders. And we see that Abraham's wealth, once again, is enlarged with more sheep, oxen, and servants. And so all of this shows God's great favor and that his promises would not be broken. God, friends, he rules this whole situation. 
and it shows his great kindness and great goodness. According to Dr. Joel Beakey, the going rate for a bride price for a dowry in that day was 50 pieces of silver. But Abimelech gives Abraham how many? A thousand pieces of silver. That's enough to buy 20 brides. And God is saying to Abraham, look at my generosity. You are going to give your wife away for nothing. For nothing. And I'm giving you the price of 20 brides. This is a God of generosity. Abraham's foolishness here is overruled by our covenant-keeping God. And God uses Abimelech to teach and to remind Abraham of this. And God can use, we know, unbelievers for his purposes. He can use them to teach us. Have you ever learned something from an unbeliever? I'm sure you have. Maybe you've been impressed by an unbeliever's integrity or by their hard work, or maybe you've been put to shame by a decision they made or something they said. God can use unbelievers. And so God uses Abimelech to bless Abraham. But he also uses Abraham to bless Abimelech. And we read in verse 7 earlier that this is a man, this man's a prophet. He's going to pray for you and you're going to live. Now, of course, we know that God is the one who allows Abimelech to live. But God uses means in Scripture. And his means for this is Abraham's prayer. In verse 17, again, he says, Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also his whole household there. So God uses Abraham in spite of his sin to bless Abimelech. And this shows God's amazing grace. What an honor that God would use Abraham in this way. And once again, we are to wonder at God's amazing grace in our lives, that he would use us for his glory, even though we are such great sinners. That's God's good desire for us. He's prepared good works beforehand that we would walk in them. We, the church, are his means to see the gospel proclaimed around the world. And he does that in spite of our sin, in spite of not deserving it at all. But then there's also a blessing to Sarah in verse 16. He says, this gift of silver is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. So he's saying your reputation, Sarah, is secure. There is no cause for anyone to think otherwise. In fact, this large sum of money shows to everyone without a doubt that you are Abraham's wife. No one will even dare to look at you in any other way. And soon we will see Sarah being blessed, conceiving, conceiving and bearing Isaac, the son of promise. And so today, brothers and sisters, we've seen that we need to beware of falling into old sins. We've seen how the Lord intercedes for his people and blesses us beyond what we deserve. And so as we close this morning, I'd like to have us consider two further thoughts of application. The first thought, and this is drilling down more into our first point this morning, but taking directly the words of Jesus in Matthew 26. Jesus said, 
watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. As we sang last Sunday, never forget that we are prone to wander. May we not become casual, cavalier, or callous towards our sin. May we never become so prideful that we think, oh, there's, there's no chance I'm ever going to commit that sin again. Our actions prove otherwise. How do we watch? Well, we can watch by examining our thoughts, our motives, our actions, by holding our conscience, to, to quote Martin Luther, to captive to the word of God, by making wise decisions about what we put in front of our eyes and ears, all the while praying, and asking the Holy Spirit to bear fruit in our lives for His glory. Praying and asking that our desires would become His desires. That He would transform us by the renewing of our minds. So may we watch and pray that we do not enter into temptation. And then secondly, I want us to rejoice in God's power over sin and Satan. Because we shouldn't overlook Satan's probable role in this story. What had just happened in chapter 19? Those two cities known for their extreme wickedness, they were destroyed. These were Satan's fortresses. And so we shouldn't be surprised that Satan would be behind this plot in chapter 20. He is the one who seeks to devour, to destroy to thwart God's plan. And what a way to do it than to make Sarah Abimelech's wife and corrupt the promised line of the Messiah. But friends, we can rejoice that our God is almighty. Satan has some might, he has some power, but it does not compare with our God. Our God was holding Abraham, Sarah, and Abimelech in his gracious hands, and he holds us as well. We're going to close this morning, both in honor of Reformation Day tomorrow, but also in light of our text, we're going to sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And in that hymn, we sing these words, The prince of darkness is grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. What's that little word? It's Jesus. That's the work of Christ. His kingdom is forever. And Satan has known this since Genesis 3. And he tries in various ways in the Old Testament to thwart God's plan, but he could never do it. He was powerless to do it. And now today we know that he is defeated because the work has been finished in Christ. And so we can rejoice over God's power over sin and Satan. We can rejoice that Satan has no power over our lives. But that's for those who are in Christ. If you are here today and you are not in Christ, if you have not trusted in Christ, that you trust a parachute to jump out of that plane, if you've not trusted in him alone to save you, then your doom is just as sure as Satan's. And that's not something that's popular to say today, that those who are without Christ are going to be in hell with eternal punishment and torment. But Jesus was very clear. He said, I am the way, the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so if you are not sure, if you have been born again, if you've trusted in Christ, we'd love to talk with you afterwards. 
how he can be set free from sin and death. And we're always open as well to pray uh, with anyone and talk with anyone after we sing. So let's stand together. And we will pray, and then we will sing. Our almighty God, we know that you are in control, that you have shown your power over sin and Satan. It's been accomplished through the work of Christ. And so we can rejoice today that the debt has been paid, the work is finished, our sins have been washed as white as snow. We thank you for this, our passage this morning and being reminded of Abraham's sin and failing in this area and yet being encouraged by your covenant faithfulness to him and blessing him more than he deserved. And so we look to you as well, and we know that your mercy extends to us and your forgiveness extends to us even when we fall into old sins, when we commit these sins that so easily entangle us, Lord. But Lord, we know that you desire that we don't stay there. And so please, we know that you will be faithful to your work. You promised to do a good work in us and that you would be faithful to complete it. And so we rest in your promises this morning. And we sing with joy that you are our mighty fortress, a bulwark never failing. In Jesus' name, amen. for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.